dessus. And we're going to read from verse 14. Uh, as Rodney, Rodney hinted at uh, in his prayer there, um, the disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ following this crucifixion on that first Good Friday um, were not exactly bold. They were, in a sense, timid mice hiding away, uh, uh, frightened even for a knock at the door that would come, that the same penalty and punishment that was exacted on Jesus Christ a few days before may indeed be exacted on them. And here we come to an account where uh, they have seen the, the risen Jesus. They have seen him uh, ascend to the highest place. They have obeyed him and waited for the gift of the Holy Spirit who is now outpoured. That's the, the context of this text where we read from Acts chapter 2 and verse 14. Let's see what God's word says. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both Men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. 
God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven and yet said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Amen. God's word. Well, historians throughout the ages have been utterly baffled in a sense at the spread of the Christian faith since its humble beginnings uh, in the first century. Uh, It's it's baffling to them because they look at the the facts as they have them before them. A ragtag group of people with no education, no money, have a a world view, if you like, a, a faith philosophy that spreads like wildfire. And they're baffled uh, in in increasing measure because they ask, how did this this faith and message survive at a time when there were already many advanced and healthy, actually, academic philosophies at at the time, impressive social ideologies at the time, not to mention many established religious faiths at the time also. And how on earth did this, this Christianity not only compete with with these various realms of philosophies, ideologies, and religious faiths, not just compete, but in a sense sweep all aside and be established in the way in which we have seen in the annals of our history. Well, Tim Keller, in his excellent book, uh, The Reason for God, which I would recommend to us all, points us to the late Yale scholar Kenneth Scott Latourette, who offered three reasons for, for, in his research for why this took place. Number one, Christians seem to care for others better than anyone else, he says, but and where Jews cared for Jews and Romans for Romans, the Christians would take care of everybody. Secondly, they were more inclusive. Historians will tell you existing religions were always geared towards a certain people, region or class, but Christianity was different. It took royalty and it took slaves and it put them in the same room together to worship the same God as brothers and sisters. Thirdly, Christians died well. 
even when death was brutal. There are innumerable accounts of Christians singing songs in the lion's den and as the torches were lit at the foot of the stake, they suggest nobody ever died like that with that kind of peace. Well, Latourette's research is interesting, but it still leaves one question hanging, doesn't it? Why? Why? Why did they love so well? Why were they so inclusive? And why did they die so well? Latourette acknowledges it's clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy, virtually unequaled in history. Without it, the future course of that religion is inexplicable. And listen to this. Why this occurred may lie outside the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move. (laughs) That's, That's the very sheltered way of saying it was a miracle. It was a miracle. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's the vast release of energy that Latourette could not bring himself to acknowledge. He is risen. He is risen. That miraculous, inexplicable release was the result of this resurrection from the dead. An event that turned, as you've heard many times before, I'm sure, those timid Mice fleeing from Jesus as he was arrested and crucified and killed and turns him into, shall we say, the roaring lions of Pentecost on this day. Jesus is risen from the dead. That's what makes Peter get up to explain what is going on. He is been filled with the Spirit and stands up before these people fearlessly, not necessarily worried anymore that the the penalty that was exacted on Jesus Christ was about to be exacted on him, stands up and says, as he does in Acts 2.32, God raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the, what's the word? Fact. (laughs) It's rather bold, Peter. Yes. What Peter goes on to do, you understand, is not only to to express that boldness through his sermon, but to just correct misunderstandings. How many people do we know when we talk to them and have misunderstandings about who Jesus is? They think he's a good man. They think he's a moral teacher. They think that he should be lined up with all of these other social ideologies and these great people of history. Maybe he should be included in that secular, good Bible, good book that, that Paul was referring to this morning in his illustration. Well, no. Peter comes up, clears his throat, speaks and seeks to correct misunderstandings, saying two main things that I want us to camp on tonight. Number one, Jesus was accredited by God. Jesus was accredited by God. And secondly, Jesus raised by God. And we'll start by looking at verses 22 to 23. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited, as in endorsed by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Here's the first misunderstanding straight away that Peter is trying to correct in them. I mean, they thought this guy was, was loathed by God. They thought Jesus was loathed by God 
But Peter stands up and by saying what he says in verses 22 to 23 says, the one you thought who was loathed by God was by his life actually pointing you to God. We know this, signs always point to something, never existing for their own sake, always pointing to something else. This is what Jesus was doing. When God had filled him with power to do these miraculous works and perform signs, he was informing people of his true identity as son of God, God truly in the flesh, and seeking to point them towards God and truth in him. And Peter's claim is that the people were well aware of the fact that Jesus performed miraculous signs. We don't know exactly about the people who were in attendance and hearing this message from Peter on this day, whether they had uh, for themselves witnessed something that he had done, whether feeding of the 5,000, raising of Lazarus. We don't know, or whether they have heard uh, secondhand what Jesus has been doing. Nevertheless, word is spread. People know that Jesus has performed miraculous signs and miracles. But they didn't read the signs very well at all. Verse 23 tells us that this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So they thought then, here's another misunderstanding, they thought Jesus was a blasphemer. They thought he was a fake. They thought he was a phony. They thought he was way out of line in terms of what they thought was appropriate for the one who claimed to be the Messiah, the anointed one of God. But Peter corrects their misunderstanding here and says, the one you thought who was, was cursed by God was that was by his very death, showing you that he was approved by God. The people of Israel at this time, surely these people knew Deuteronomy 21, 23 well. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The fact that Jesus Christ was crucified on wood was to many a sign of the fact that he was cursed by God. That was, in a sense, as they saw it, God's judgment on a sinner. But look at the way Peter presents Jesus' crucifixion here. He takes, talks of Jesus' death as that which God has not only known about, but that God has planned. That is planned, and Peter explains with such simplicity that God the Father handed over God the Son to the people of Israel for them to nail Jesus Christ to the cross of Calvary with the help of the Romans. And do you see what Peter's doing in this? He's presenting the death of Jesus not as some unanticipated blip on the plan of God, but a perfect outworking of a perfect plan. You know, God does not look down on the cross and say, oh, well, that was a surprise. Far from it. He's not looking down and saying, wow, I, I thought they would have loved him. No, far from it. He's saying before the foundation of the world, this has been the pivotal point where my love would be displayed to the entire world. And as Jesus dies on that cross, everything, everything, everything is going according to plan. 
And what Peter says in correcting their misunderstanding is this, this, this cross, this is not defeat. No, this is victory. This is victory. Sin is paid for through this. Yes, this is curse, but this is not curse and penalty being paid for his own sin. No, it's penalty being paid for our sin. And that sacrifice of Jesus on that Good Friday was met with the approval of God. How do we know that this sacrifice met the approval of God? Romans 1 verse 4 tells us clearly that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God. How? By his resurrection from the dead. So the proof that Jesus and the sacrifice of his own life was approved by God is found in the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And, and it's as if God, in raising Jesus from the dead, is effectively saying, I have accepted the cross as a full payment for sin. The check has been cashed. Get it? It has not bounced. It has been paid in full. The price of our redemption paid in full on that first Good Friday. And God confirms Jesus is not loathed by me. He is loved by me. His death confirms that. His resurrection confirms that. And in a sense, that's what we see in verses 24 to 35 in our second point, where we have some incredibly bold statements from Peter as he starts declaring that Jesus was raised by God. Look at verse 24. God raised him, as he's setting the record straight again here, God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. Now, what is death? What is death? I mean, death surely to us certainly is it's seemingly the strongest of foes, isn't it? I mean, who ultimately takes on death and wins? comes to us all. It's a, it's a formidable enemy, isn't it? That's certainly how the Bible presents it in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. It's explicitly referred to as an enemy. It's in, death is introduced to this world as a result of the sin of humankind when people first rebelled against God, God's loving rule in the beginning. And it brings, we know this all too well, it brings anguish it brings anguish. It brings that agony. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. That's a good way to describe what death is. Spurgeon once said, death is a fierce invader of the realms of life. The tear of the bereaved, the wail of the widow, the moan of the orphan. These have been death's war music and he has found therein a song of victory. But not today, not on Easter day. Not given the fact that Jesus Christ is now raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of the Father. No, not since that tomb is empty and Jesus bursts out declaring, As I live, you also shall live. Not today. Not after this day of resurrection when Jesus walked from the grave. Because there's another misconception that Peter corrects. 
Jesus is stronger than the greatest of enemies of death. Because on that good first Good Friday, you know, death had thrown everything at Jesus, piling on the agony, squeezing out every last breath of the failing body of Jesus on the cross. And to the seeing eye, to those present, it looked like it was the end, but it wasn't. God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. Verse 4 continues. It was impossible, impossible for death to keep its hold on him. (laughs) Impossible. That's just not possible. It's impossible. I love the imagery of this. It's, It's the imagery actually of birth pangs in labor. By which I think we're supposed to see that by the power of Almighty God, Jesus was in a sense delivered from death. And the commentator Bertram says it well, the abyss, death, can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body when it comes to that point of labor and delivery. My wife, sadly, has had two very long labors. (laughs) One five days, one two days. But you know, that baby comes out. It was. It would be impossible to keep that baby in that womb. And it likewise is impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Despite the strength of death's grip on humanity, Jesus Christ could not be held. And as a result, death no longer has mastery over him. There's a finality to this defeat and victory for us. Death truly has lost its sting. Now, to be sure, let me, not, let me correct any misconceptions any of us may we have. We still die, okay? But for the believer, death is different. Spurgeon says it better than anyone. Stingless. Death remains among the people of God, but it so little harms them that to them it is not death to die. And then he talks to death. I love this. So death, I will not fear you. Why should I? You look like a dragon, but your sting is gone. Your teeth are broken, old lion. So why should I fear you? I know that you are no more able to destroy me But you are sent as a messenger to conduct me to the golden gate of heaven through which I shall enter and see my Savior's face forever. Sweet. Isn't that precious? Isn't that absolutely precious? Because the truth of the matter is that Peter declares death is dead. Love has won. Christ has, say it, conquered. Jesus is stronger than the greatest of enemies, death. And what Peter goes on to say is Jesus is exalted above above the greatest of kings, David. Between verses 25 and 35, Peter expands on this view of resurrection. He quotes from King David, from the Psalms. Uh, David, of course, was, was Israel's real pride and joy in many respects. Their golden boy, the great king over Israel. He was known as a man after God's own heart. And in verse 25, where Peter talks about the risen Jesus, uh, Peter says that when David was speaking, he's referring to Psalm 16 in particular, 
He's saying, don't think you're hearing David's voice here. You were hearing the voice of a greater king. Jesus, who was so sure of his resurrection from the dead. So verse 25, it was Jesus who was keeping his eyes on God. Verse 25 again, it was Jesus who knew the Lord's protection. Verse 26, it was Jesus who was glad of the results of his life. Verse 27, it was Jesus who had nothing to fear from the grave. Verse 28, it was Jesus who was promised resurrection. In other words, David was not talking about himself. He's dead and though his soul is with the Lord, his body, or what remains of it now, is buried in a tomb not far from here, not here but there. Verse 31, seeing what was ahead, he, David, spoke of Jesus Christ. Verse 32, God raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of the fact. He was raised to the highest place to demonstrate that he is greater than the greatest of Israel's kings, David. He truly is the king of kings. And many were witnesses of the fact. Many witnesses of his resurrection. Many, as, as many as 500 on one occasion. And we know from other gospel accounts in scripture that, that while Jewish leaders are bribing Roman guards to lie about the fact that the tomb is empty, Peter is explaining to the people, you need to know the truth here. Jesus Christ, who once was dead, is now Alive and is now exalted to, verse 33, the right hand of the Father. And what's he doing there? He is pouring out the Holy Spirit, which you now see and hear. He's saying, you see our joy. You hear the rushing wind. You hear us speaking in your own languages. We're not drunk. We're the church. (laughs) We're the redeemed. Because the Messiah has come and God in Jesus Christ has died on the cross paying the penalty for our sin that we may have life and he has risen and he is exalted and you missed it. No, no, you didn't miss it. You nailed him to the cross. And he is at the right hand of the Father pouring out his spirit into us. This, what you see in here, is because he's alive because he is risen from the dead we're living it out what the prophet Joe had promised God has made this Jesus whom you crucified Lord and Christ Peter is not holding back at all is he I wonder if we could be like those people there many of whom were convicted of their sin many of whom did not argue with Peter on that day and say hang on a minute I didn't even get close to Jerusalem on that day or they didn't try and argue their way out of it they didn't have a hammer in one hand and a nail in the other strategically placing it across his hands and his feet and nailed Jesus to the cross But they got what he meant, didn't they? Still, they expressed their conviction. They accept responsibility even by what they go on to say. And I wonder if we feel the same. Because, friends, if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. What we sing about here in this church and what we testify to 
practically every week, I think we do every week, is the fact that it's because of our sin that Christ hung there. We sing it often, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. The point is, in this death of Jesus Christ, we are all indicted. We have all sinned, even though we try to deny it or cover it up or excuse ourselves from it. From any moral requirement to obey him, we are, we are guilty before him because of our sin. And this is what the people understand through Peter's preaching of the victorious and risen Jesus Christ. I wonder if any of you have seen Rembrandt's painting of the three crosses depicting the crucifixion scene. Uh, it, it's a tremendous uh, painting. The onlooker's eye drawn firstly to the very center of the uh, center cross on which Jesus Christ hangs. And even as we were thinking about this morning, on either side of him there are two criminals. Interestingly, one hangs his head in darkness, the other head raised in a shaft of light. But if you look in more detail or more carefully at the detail of the painting, you can see various facial expressions very clearly in the crowd standing around the cross on that day. And if you look especially careful, and if you, if you knew Rembrandt, or if you at least know what he looks like, you would notice him. He painted himself into the picture on the periphery because he got what these people got in this text today. It was my sin that held him there. He painted himself into the picture because he understood that his sins had contributed to Christ's nailing to the cross. Do we realize that? Do we realize that our sin requires the payment of such a penalty? Or do we just kind of blush over our sin? We pass it off as an oops, rather than take it very seriously. Rather than take it to the level of seriousness where we actually recognize that our, our sin that we could never pay the price for ourselves except by our death and an eternal death at that. That that price was paid in full by Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus, crucified because of our sins, is raised to life. It's preached and proclaimed to you as, it, as it's preached and proclaimed to them on this day the big question is will you respond like they responded they experienced conviction of sin it says they were cut to the heart that sounds painful doesn't it it's not easy coming face to face with sin we're not suggesting that it is for some it can be quite a shock for some it can be quite hurtful but we need to come face to face with the reality of it are we cut to the heart maybe the Holy Spirit's working in us just in the same way that he was working on this day in John 16 8 Jesus promised even before he died if I go to the Father I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will convict the world of sin maybe he's already at work drawing you tonight to convict your heart regarding sin and to see the crucified and risen Savior as truly that, the Savior of the world. 
how will you respond? How will you respond? Many people look on Jesus Christ and recognize the costly call that he makes on life and just see him not as a savior but as an enemy, see him as a threat and so refuse to come to him in faith. But again, Peter's words just keep on coming through. They keep on hammering on the callousness, as it were, of our hearts. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Some of us respond to that conviction with cowardice, I believe. I think I've used this illustration before, but it's it's appropriate again. When I was in Rwanda a few years ago, there was barely a night went by without me being wakened up by the scuffling of a cockroach, quite clearly a product of the fall. <laughs> you would have thought, as I woke up and like a real man shone my torch on the cockroach, you would have thought I was burning a hole in its back with the way it fled for cover and sometimes when we come under conviction of sin we do just what the cockroach does we do not like the light of God's truth shining into our darkness and we we've run for our lives but that's the worst thing that we can do don't run with cowardice and hide do what the people in this text did and cry out just cry out what what shall we do what shall we do when you're cut to the heart you cry out not just for help but for truth and for guidance Peter responds in verse 38 he encourages them to confess their sin repent stop your sinful ways in other words turn round come to Jesus, confess your sin, receive his gracious forgiveness on account of his death, on account of his resurrection, trusting that by his death he paid the price for your sin and by his resurrection from the dead he will acquit you. You have confirmation and confidence in the fact that he will acquit you and pardon you from your sin. Romans 4.25 tells us that he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Wipe our slate clean. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Will you call upon his name today? Will you call upon his name this evening, recognizing the futility of a life of sin? And recognizing the fruit of Christ's life, death, and resurrection that he wins for you, for all who will come to him in faith, believing in him, and in repentance turning away from sin and asking forgiveness for that sin and recognizing what verse 21 of this text says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. What's the next word? Say it. Say it. Will be 
saved. As Peter pleaded with his hearers that day, so I plead with you on account of Jesus' death and resurrection, save yourselves from this corrupt generation and come to the risen Christ. Let's pray.